Welcome back to the Nutrition Unmeasured podcast. I'm your host, Gina Forster, a dietitian and certified intuitive eating counselor from Columbus, Ohio. This episode is brought to you by my quick and simple nourishment guide. This just came out uh, actually early this year, early this month, early this year, I guess, uh, only $5 and it is 11 pages of nourishment tips just for you. Uh, essentially, it is a guide to for anyone who has a family or not, and they're just looking for simple meals to prepare. When I say simple, I'm talking there's basically not a recipe. It's five to ten minutes of, uh, you know, meal and snack ideas that will get you going and keep you energized throughout the day. You know, I talk to so many people every day and they tell me they don't have time for lunch or they don't have time to make dinner. Or if you're like me, you know, you make dinner, it takes an hour, it takes forever, but then your kids don't eat it. Well, here are some quick and simple ideas that I think most kids will enjoy, but at least I think you will enjoy. I also have some good tips in there if you are a vegetarian or vegan and you want to make any of my suggestions, uh, you know, more plant-based, those tips are in there as well, along with some just simple nourishment guides uh, to guide you through your eating throughout the year. All right. And what about updates since last time? I'm going to be honest, I am recording this a little bit early. So when this comes out, it'll actually be the new year. Uh, But right now it is still it's not. And in fact, I haven't even experienced Christmas by the time I'm recording this. That's how um, that's how I'm looking ahead to see everything that's going to be happening in my life the next few weeks. And I'm like, I'm not going to have time to record this. So I need to do it now. But I'll just say, as of now, Christmas is around the corner. When you hear this, it'll be long gone. The holidays will be coming to an end, uh, which for some of you might be sad. For some might be exciting. I know for us in early January, the holidays don't end because we have back-to-back birthdays. It's my husband's birthday, January 12th, and my birthday on the 30th, and my son's birthday in February. So it's almost like the holidays just keep on going. Uh, And I have to try to remind myself to do things to take care of my self-care as the busyness never ends in this time of year. All right. Well, let's go ahead and start with the interview. I am so excited today to bring you Sumner Brooks. Sumner is a registered dietitian and eating disorder specialist who's been working as an outpatient counselor with clients on all levels of the disordered eating spectrum for over 14 years. She's the co-author of How to Raise an Intuitive Eater, which was published in 2022. As the founder of EDRD Pro, Sumner's work focuses on educating fellow dietitians and nutrition professionals to integrate weight-inclusive, health-at-every-size, informed approaches into their practice. Special areas of interest include coaching for disordered eating, working with young people and adolescents, as well as consulting with parents and caregivers around navigating early signs of eating disorders. Since 2020, Sumner has been alcohol-free and openly shares her views about this important topic. Sumner is clear to state that she is not a trained substance abuse counselor. However, she sees her own past struggles with alcohol her experiences in counseling as an eating disorder dietitian, and her training in the mental health space all as a strong underpinning for her growing commitment to inspire other women exploring sobriety. She's most interested in the conversations about how stopping drinking can positively change a person's mindset, 
overall quality of life and their relationship with self. I'm so excited to bring Sumner to the podcast today. All right. I am with Sumner Brooks. Sumner, you've graciously agreed to be on the podcast again, and I'm thrilled to have you here. Hello, Gina. Thank you. I am really happy to be back and honored that for the invitation. Yeah. Well, I know, like I said, you've been on the podcast before, back when it was Dietitian's Dish. I know we have some similar listeners, but just for some icebreakers, uh, I like to ask a couple questions. And the first one I'm going to ask of you is, if you had to choose a favorite food of all time, you know, let's just say it was your last meal or last dessert, what would it be? Oh my gosh. And I've been asked this before and I tend to answer it differently every time. Well, okay. I'm just going to go with this. It just so happens that last night at dinner, um, we've got family in town. So we're all sitting around the dinner table and we passed around a bottle of barbecue sauce and whoever had the barbecue sauce was the only one who could talk. And the question was, what is your most favorite dessert in the world? And I boiled it down to uh, chocolate New York style cheesecake. Um, I feel like there's nothing else like it. And that's my favorite right now. <laughs> oh, yum. Now, do you have a specific baker or place where you get it? Is Yeah. Where, what's your favorite? Oh, you know what? That is such a good question. Um we had a very close family friend for many years who would make it. And she unfortunately passed away um, about 10 years ago. And I don't think I've had a cheesecake that can measure up to hers since then. Wow. Did she happen to leave the recipe that you can check out? I don't know. Ooh. I don't know. I need to find that out. Yeah. But I'm sure I'm sure no one can do it like her anyway. But that that's where my love for that food came from. Oh, I love that story. That's that's wonderful. I, I have a lot of friends who make cheesecake, all different types. It's not my ultimate favorite, but I will say like it's not not I never like think about cheesecake, but whenever I eat it, I'm always so glad that I did. It's one of those foods, you know? <laughs> it is so good. Yeah. It's it's so good in so many ways. Okay. So we're kind of taking a 180 here. What about best vacation or best place you've ever visited? And I feel like I might know the answer based on a vacation you took last year. <laughs> oh my God. True. Uh, we went to Egypt uh, in September last year. Oh God. It was just so mind blowing. It was so incredible to like be taken back in time and understand why this place in the world was such an important powerful place um the nile is amazing there are so many cities and villages that are just gorgeous and the people are gorgeous and the history is all still right there you know oh. you walk inside of a temple or a tomb and you just understand what was happening thousands of years ago. It's absolutely incredible. I hope anybody who has the opportunity will take a trip to Egypt because it's definitely worth it. Yeah, I was following you vicariously through your Instagram feed <laughs> during that time. And it was, I mean, just it looked absolutely amazing. Yeah. So. I even I tried to give myself like I'm going to totally disconnect type of vacation 
And I, I literally couldn't. I was like, I need to share this with people because I feel like it's a gift. Like people yeah. need to see this. And I don't know. I would want to see if it were you in Egypt, I'd want you to share your pictures. Yeah, definitely. No, it, it was wonderful. I hope to to make it there sometime. I actually have a good friend from Egypt, so um, I would I would love to go there sometime. I've got many many places I would like to visit. So, yeah, I've got. I mean, I'll just say this. Yeah, I didn't know what to expect from the Nile. Yeah, I had told myself I was going to jump in once just to say that I did it, and it was the best swimming of my life. Oh wow! The perfect temperature. The water was so clean. And like amazing. Oh. It was really hot too. And so jumping in, I mean, it was just not too cold, not too warm, super clean. It was incredible. So uh, last thing about eat. Sounds amazing. All right. Well, Sumner, as I mentioned, you were on a previous podcast, the previous podcast, Dietitian's Dish. I think you were actually on there twice now that I'm thinking about it. And I'll link uh, those episodes in the show notes. Uh, but can you tell listeners more about your background in intuitive eating and also more about your path to sobriety. Yes. So um, as a dietitian, I started receiving formal training and I think it was around 2010. And I was so fortunate to be able to train and be mentored under one of the original intuitive eating pioneers who is Elise Resch. Yeah. And so learning and, you know, seeing and using intuitive eating so early on in my career. Um, really, that's what that's what my career trajectory became, was focusing on helping people heal their relationship with food. Um, and it's truly what brought me, you know, down the road into specializing in eating disorders. I mean, they're so connected and it made so much sense to me. But at the same time, um, as I was finishing grad school, prior to learning about intuitive eating, I was still significantly suffering with my own disordered eating. Um, and so it not only made a major influence on how I work as a dietitian and my career, but it absolutely was um, the thing that helped me experience healing as well. So that definitely you know, impacts my lens of why I bring intuitive eating into my work and into my family life and into all the things I'm passionate about because um, it's a really powerful framework. Yeah. Um, in terms of my path to sobriety, I have been sober now from alcohol for over three years. Um, and that was a decision that I made to give context that was really early on in the pandemic. So this was like May of 2020. Um, it was also the same time that I was beginning to work on the manuscript for How to Raise an Intuitive Eater, which was a very big project, a very important project to me. Um, so struggling with mental health during the early pandemic at the onset of taking on this really important contract to write the book, um, I kind of felt a peak in like the amount of stress that I was feeling related to my drinking. Um, to take a few steps backward from that, though, I I knew that for years I had been internally really struggling with my drinking habits. You know, I would take breaks or and I would try to slow down. Um, that felt 
very difficult for me to quote unquote moderate. Um, and I wouldn't share with people or admit it, but it was certainly majorly affecting my mood in terms of anxiety and depression. Um, it was limiting my ability to be the kind of parent I wanted to be. Yeah. I, I, I can look back and the way that I describe it to people is I feel like there was a glass wall between where I was at in my life and the life that I really feel like I wanted to have. Like everything on the outside looks exactly the same, but I couldn't actually get there. I couldn't feel the way that I felt I should feel in my life, um, just out of reach. And I, I honestly, I don't know if I wanted to pretend it wasn't real or if I was scared to stop drinking, but I just didn't realize that that was the thing that was the problem. I was much quicker to say that I needed help for depression or that I had, um, you know, generalized anxiety disorder. And until I really stopped drinking and committed to that, um, it wasn't, you know, it just hadn't been clear to me before I stopped drinking that that was actually the problem. Um, so I don't know. I'm, I'm happy to like keep sharing, but I don't know if right now you want to have any discussion or have any questions about that little piece of it so far. Yeah, no, I think that's an interesting thing that you point out because I, I do think that sometimes people, oftentimes people will blame anything else that seems easier to blame. Um, <laughs> like even anxiety, I think for some people it might be easier to admit I have anxiety than to admit maybe it's the alcohol or maybe it's, you know, what you put whatever other drug or food or anything in, in its place. Uh, it can be so much easier to to assume that it's something else that maybe even in a lot of ways there's a there's a quicker way to fix anxiety, for example. Like maybe it's just it's just anxiety. I could take something for that and that will help rather than realizing, oh, wow, it's a little bit it's a little bit more than that and something that I actually have control over. And that's what you realize with alcohol. It's that's what it was. Yes. So that's why I think it is so important to have these conversations. These are the kinds of conversations that led me to get honest with myself. Um, I think there's a lot of value to people actually hearing the truth about what's happening with this relationship between alcohol and depression and anxiety. I can I can very easily now describe what was happening for me, which was I had been drinking for most of my adult life very regularly, and that had been normalized, and nobody saw it as a problem. I didn't see it as a problem. But when we learn about, you know, when you drink alcohol, dopamine and other endorphins are released. So right. So we yeah. feel better very quickly. And then we know that as that alcohol is being metabolized and you're essentially coming down from that dopamine high, you actually go lower than you were before you had the drink. So maybe it's later on that day or the next morning. If people feel like they're waking up after drinking and you know having a tough time with mood and depression, 
it's not simply because they might have depression. It very well could be related to this, you know, the substance. Um, and so what do we do then when we feel really low again? And right, there's all this life stuff going on every single day that we have to deal with. We know that having a drink will feel good very quickly. So somebody who uses alcohol in that way is going to go right back and have their next drink that night. Yeah. Um, when we don't know this, when, a, when people who question how alcohol is fitting into their life and they think there may be some sort of a problem, when people don't know that information, you know, it's, it's like they're sort of blind to what's happening in their own body. And that was really powerful for me to understand. I don't know about you or like when you might have come to learn about that, but mm -hmm. that was really big for me. Yeah, and I and I want to go back to what I said too, and and I I, I did if, if at all I tried to simplify depression or anxiety, it, it is very difficult to handle depression and anxiety. But I think sometimes people think that, um, and just from my lived experience is what I've seen. It's like okay, well I I can put the blame on something that has a diagnosis, you know, and that I can handle. I mean, it's not easy, but I can do something about it. Versus really digging deep and looking deep like what you just said and seeing what else could it be? Could it be my coping strategy that, that's kind of like a vicious cycle that's getting me back into this place of depression and anxiety? And it sounds like that's what you did. Uh, yeah, I I just like what you said, having these conversations is so important, just, just like with intuitive eating and body acceptance, the conversations and listening is so important for me too. I I am not sober. I would call myself sober curious, which is actually something I want to talk about in the next the next question. But just listening, I, I'm so much more aware of exactly what you just said, like how I use alcohol, uh, when I use alcohol, and how it's affecting me. But I never thought about it before. I really didn't. It was just like, yeah, this is alcohol. Like, what's the big deal? I I use it to have fun. I use it to wind down. I never thought about it outside of just the quote unquote normal way of, of using alcohol. So yeah, I think you're right. Having the conversations, yeah. so important. And then the other, you know, there are so many pieces to this, right? But it, it becomes individualized, right? We don't all have the same experience, although we, we have similar experiences, yeah. but um, like alcohol is also not just something that impacts our neurochemicals and our hormones and our sleep and all of that stuff, but it also is a highly addictive substance. So somebody who drinks, you know, a small glass of wine and that's it and doesn't feel like they can't stop is taking in a different dose of an addictive substance than somebody who might have two or three or four glasses of wine normally. Mm -hmm. So this is the concept of tolerance, right? So the more you drink, the more your tolerance goes up. And then we know that the greater amount of the substance you're taking in, the more of that impact it's going to have physiologically inside your body. And the more likely you are to need that next three or four glasses of wine the next night. Even if you might say, I can still stop. I'm not driving drunk. Um, I don't feel depressed. No matter what, it's still an addictive substance and it's having that piece of the impact on people. And 
we know that alcohol is um, is poisonous, right? We know you can get alcohol poisoning if you overdrink. Um, we know that there's, you know, a lot of damage done to our liver and and other things in the body from alcohol because it's a poison. Um, so I say all of this to help people really think about this is not black and white. You know, this is not who's an alcoholic and who's who is an alcoholic and who's not an alcoholic, right? There's a lot of gray area to think about. Now you're jumping ahead, Sumner. I have all these questions. <laughs> it's all right. No, it's so it's good. I because that's the thing about alcohol, especially um, for someone like you who has, uh, you know, ha- has this history and has decided to to go sober. And again, you have you do so much reading and so much talking about it. So you can talk about it in loops for for so long, but there's so much to talk about. And before we get into what you just said, uh, which I do want to come back to because I think it's important, let's talk about intuitive eating and sort of the and, and diet culture and drinking culture and the parallels. Uh, so I, I've mentioned a few times on previous episodes of this podcast, and I just said it out loud that I would consider myself sober curious in that I am not sober, but I probably have maybe a drink, maybe a week. Um, I'm one of those rare people who can do that, but I realize it's a slippery slope. I'm very aware of that. Um, I've read a couple of great books about drinking, which have honestly completely changed my view of alcohol. So again, going back to always listening, reading, and listening to you, and I'll link those books in the show notes. So just like with Health at Every Size, after so with health, health at every size, after reading about it and learning about it, everywhere I go now, I can't unsee it. The body shaming, the weight stigma, the intense focus on just weight everywhere we go. I feel the same about alcohol culture. I really can't unsee what I learned in those books, what I listen from, you know, what I listen about from you and the harm that alcohol has on us as humans and as a society. So how is alcohol, and and I know you kind of just gave this an answer and you can just make this brief since you really kind of just said it, but how is alcohol affecting people short-term and long-term? And again, I know you kind of just said this. So if you just want to sum it up. Yeah, I mean, like with a lot of coping mechanisms, you know, it can be, the same thing can be said for eating disorders, you know, like something works in the short-term and look, humans need something to work. We we reach a level of our window of tolerance. And when we're outside that window of tolerance, our body and our nature is to find a way to bring us back down. Yeah. Um, so the short term is, yeah, it releases dopamine and it feels good. And we have associations where we could feel better within, you know, one minute of having the first drink. And that's what works for people. Um, it's that, yeah, it's it's everything kind of we just talked about is that it, what, what happens when that drink is done? You know, for me, I realized if I have one drink, the next thing that will happen is I'll want another drink because I know what's coming if I stop is a, is a low and I want to avoid that. I want to keep feeling good. Um, I think that... So in in the longer term, the more regularly someone is drinking, they have, you know, that also that cortisol, which is cortisol gets released from alcohol as well. So that's kind of the piece that can make people feel anxious. 
But when I think about the long-term effect of drinking to cope or however somebody's going to define why they drink, um, it is a, a disconnect. It is a, this is easier than dealing with these hard feelings or yeah. it's easier for me to socialize with alcohol than it is for me to socialize sober because I might have had X and Y and Z experiences or deep, deep down, I don't feel confident or I, you know, whatever it is, is that as long as we are using alcohol in some way to help us, we know that it's not truly getting to the root of the issue. And therefore we continue to like suffer with those things anytime there's not alcohol. So for me, the long-term impact of not drinking alcohol has been finally, and finally been able to discover what the things are that actually impact me on a daily basis that, that make me the person that I am, that make me live life in the present. Um, so along with all the health problems that alcohol causes to bodies as a poison, it's really also this like the psychological, emotional impact, I believe is really, really um, strong. Yeah, yeah. And and again, parallels with using alcohol to cope, using food to cope. I mean, whatever it is that you're using to cope, it's hard to let that go and to see it and to own up to it and to recognize it. That's the hardest part. But then once you do, like actually letting go, you start to really see life for I guess what it is and and that's really hard <laughs> sitting with your emotions sitting with your feelings but in the long run like what you're saying it's worth it and life-changing yeah like um Gaber Mate who is a doctor who wrote in the realm of hungry ghosts and a lot of other um very well-known books you know there's one quote from his that is I think it says like don't ask why the addiction, or maybe it's like, don't ask why the substance, ask why the pain, you know? Yeah. Yes, substances are addictive, but why do we go to them? Why do we need them? Why are they hard to stop? Um, life is painful. Life is really hard on all different levels for people. It totally makes sense that we want to use something that helps us feel better. Um, I... I just think that because it's so normalized, um, we don't really all, we don't get an opportunity to question alcohol um, in some, you know, in some communities. In the community I, you know, socially was living in, um, I hadn't really felt that there had been an opportunity to stop drinking or question my drinking. I didn't, there may have been, but I didn't feel like that was an option for me. Um, and speaking to like your kind of the parallels between health at every size and accepting that dieting isn't a helpful path, um, I do notice how people are drinking, how much they're drinking. Um, and I don't, I try not to form a lot of conclusions or judgments about that. However, what I can see is that it, it does change my ability to connect with them. It changes my ability to really get to know them. Um, I can see how their drinking is 
kind of keeping them from, you know, being their honest version of their self with me. Now I can see all of that where I didn't really see that before. Mm. Yeah, I can, I could, I can relate to that as well. Now that I have gotten into a position in my, in my professional life where I'm doing more one-on-one coaching, I can really relate to that too. And part of intuitive eating is again, sitting with your emotions. You know, you can't feel, you can't heal what you can't feel. That's the, the big quote. And you're exactly right. It's hard if someone is using alcohol to cope uh, or food to cope, whatever it is, it's really hard to get through to them the importance of, yeah, really feeling those emotions and, and not, not, not necessarily getting across that, but it's harder for them to do that if they've got this addiction to alcohol or whatever it is. Um, and that's part of our job, right? I mean, I don't work with people necessarily on uh, reducing alcohol or quitting alcohol, but again, the parallels are there. And I think a lot of the the tools in coaching support is probably uh, really, really similar. So, so speaking of intuitive eating and alcohol and all that, let's keep, let's keep continuing with this topic. So, you know, one of the the cringy things that we in this intuitive eating space here, I, I think is, and you probably relate to this, people saying, I'm going to give up sugar or I'm going to give up carbohydrates because we know that it's not helpful. It's not a helpful way to make peace with food or to be balanced and healthy. Uh, it truly ends up backfiring. But it sounds like you gave and many people give up alcohol more or less cold turkey. So how is the cold turkey approach different when it's alcohol versus when it's food? And I guess why would giving up alcohol cold turkey work? Whereas like I would never recommend doing that with food. Why? How is it different? Oh, right. So two different questions there. Um, So the first one I'm going to just talk about is why is quitting alcohol cold turkey different from our ability to just give up a certain food group cold turkey um so our body needs food to survive and our body will never stop needing food to survive Uh, particularly carbohydrates right that is our fuel for our brain and our brain runs our body So from a survival standpoint, the response that the human body has typically to restricting a food or restricting a food group or a macronutrient like carbohydrates, the the survival response is to have increased cravings for that food until we satisfy that need that our body needs for that fuel. It is such an incredible system that we have between how our brain knows how much energy we have available to keep going, to keep moving, to keep living, and then the communication network between our brain through triggering different appetite hormones and then giving us the actual signal that we need to eat and really what do we need to eat. So when we're having intense cravings or intense, like, yeah, intense sugar cravings, for example, it is because our body is telling us this is what we need to stay safe. Yeah. 
Um, so that is very different from alcohol. We don't need alcohol to survive. Caveat there being people who are phys- you know, physically addicted to alcohol cannot and should not quit cold turkey without medical support. Really important for people to know that. But in general, we don't need alcohol to survive. And there is a process of withdrawal when you stop using a substance um, that can feel absolutely terrible. Um, So even if you don't have that intense level of withdrawal, the cravings are more complex than just about our network of, of energy balance and carbohydrate need and our appetite. Uh, we, we've already talked about how cravings are about coping, emotional regulation, habits, um, all kinds of things. So we can safely give up alcohol cold turkey sometimes. I was able to, but I wasn't able to for a long time. You know, I actually didn't quit cold turkey. I eventually did, but it took me a couple years. I tried, I tried to quit many times. And because it's so hard and because I didn't ask for help and because I didn't hold myself accountable until I finally did, but unless I put all those things in place, I wasn't able to quit cold turkey. So I wouldn't say that, you know, we can just do this with alcohol, whereas food we can't. I think it's a little more complicated, you know, than that. But those are, would say, are the reasons why these are different, you know, these are different journeys to go through. Yeah, I really appreciate you you saying that. So if you are chemically um, addicted is, would you, would you say that's when it's not appropriate? I, I guess when would I have, I have actually been with someone who has been withdrawing from alcohol and it is scary and it is intense and not just for the person, but for anyone around them. Um, uh-huh. and that was a cold Turkey withdrawal, not smart. It was, I, it, I saw it, it was terrifying. Um, so when would that not be appropriate? I, I, I'm kind of going off here now, just, just, just so people are clear. I mean, when, if someone is drinking, I mean, yeah, how would you know when it would be appropriate or not? Well, to be, you know, I'm not a substance use or an addictions expert. Right. You know, I'm not a medical doctor. I don't really know. Um, I have heard all different kinds of stories. You know, there are how somebody interprets or what they believe about their situation with alcohol might be inaccurate. Yeah. So what I mean by that is someone might say, My, you know, alcohol is not that big of a problem for me. I'm not really that addicted. I'm just going to stop, you know, but they actually may be much more physically addicted than they're realizing. Right. Right. We can't, I don't want to assume that anybody has the ability to accurately measure that for themselves. Mm-hmm. So I would say, you know, people need to, this is part of the process of really committing yourself to changing your relationship with alcohol or getting sober is to ask for help and is to do it in a way where you don't do it alone yeah. because it is so hard. Yeah. So whether it's whether it's out of medical necessity and safety, you shouldn't do it alone or whether it's simply out of, hey, this is probably going to be tough. You're going to need some support. I also would say don't do it alone if you don't have to. Mm-hmm. Yeah, really good point. 
Um, I think a really good resource for people, though, is to join some kind of alcohol recovery group. Um, There's lots of different models and frameworks and approaches out there. People need to get, um, you know, curious and maybe experiment with what kind of support is going to work best for them, whether that's in person or virtual or a one-on-one coach or group support. Um, I'm always happy and open to share with people that I had a great experience with a group called She Recovers. They are a, um, I think they're international, but they're they're definitely a national organization. You can join for free, like on a Facebook group, go to their website. They have tons of resources. But so I learned a lot about this from reading those threads and conversations and stories in that Facebook group. And that's where I learned, wow, everyone is in the same boat and everyone is in a different boat at the same time. Okay. Thank you for that. I'll put those, uh, some links in the show notes. That's a really, really uh, great tip. Thank you for sharing that. Okay. So to go back to the question, I think what you're saying is that our need for food is primal. We've got this primal urge. Our body has these biological mechanisms that automatically like overcompensate for any food that we're giving up. So if we restrict carbs, our body's going to crave carbs. Uh, And that's a biological trait that we thankfully have as humans to really keep us alive. Whereas with alcohol, because it's not something that we need, we, we might have an urge to drink when we stop, but it's not the same like primal biological urge. It's more of a coping habit. Emotional regulation is what you said. And that makes yeah, so much right. sense. I'm so glad that you explained that because I've had people ask me that and that the way you described that just makes so much sense. So, okay. So that being yeah, said, I, oh, go ahead. Well, I think in one of our earlier conversations, we we the question was actually about like with intuitive eating, we're talking about satisfying a craving in order to reduce kind of the volume of the craving, right? Mm -hmm. To balance out, to to trust our bodies that when we're having a craving, we need to fulfill it. And that helps build trust between us and our body and our relationship with food. Um, I I used to apply that principle to my drinking. That was a way that I justified, well, I really want it, so I should allow myself to have it because when I don't allow myself to have it, my cravings get really bad. Um, that That was really not a helpful approach um, I had to learn that though, you know, I, I thankfully was able to go through that process safely without hitting rock bottom and learn that, but it's not true. And that's, you know, it's not the same. We don't intuitively drink. Mm-hmm. We don't need to satisfy an alcohol craving with a drink in order to achieve balance and trust with our body. They're just not the same things. Mm-hmm. At least, at least not with some good support and coaching and therapy if needed. Right. I mean, mm-hmm. if that's where you where you find yourself trying to be an intuitive drinker and eat drink only when the urge arises, you might want to ask yourself, like, when is that urge arising? Is it pretty consistent, like the same time every day, the same reason, dealing with the same emotion and feeling? And if that's the case, maybe, you know, just be honest with yourself and ask, you know, do I need help uh, with this? Yeah. Like, yeah. do the inquiry. You know, I also had... um variations of eating disorders throughout a couple decades of my life. And so when I was experiencing binging and restriction, 
an urge for me to binge was part of it was restriction leading me to that. Mm -hmm. But also part of that was the emotional coping. And I think there are people who experiencing an urge to binge, not necessarily because of restriction, but because of the need to disconnect, the need to, you know, separate from whatever the feelings are that are happening. So um, I don't remember where that just came from. Um, no, yeah, that was what did you say right before uh, that? I was talking about in- intuitive drinking and how you might want to uh, really yes. think deeply as to whether your drinking is to cope with emotions and feelings, or really if it's really just for fun, kind of. Yeah, yes, exactly. And I think you're and exactly I'm not right. saying that there aren't people. Yeah, there absolutely are people who. You know, I believe they say that they are able to drink intuitively and Mm -hmm. it's not for me to say that that's not exactly what's happening for them. Maybe it is. My experience was very different. I wasn't able to do that. Yeah. Yeah. I would I would agree with you on both the food front and the uh, the alcohol for me personally. I just now I'm just thinking back because I also had an eating disorder. I think we've talked about that before. And I would definitely have episodes of restricting and binging, restricting and binging. And while I know a lot of the binges were biological, like my my body was just really hungry and I needed those calories. I also think a lot of it was masking feelings and emotions that I just didn't want to sit with. I'm sure a lot of it was. Mm-hmm. It was so long ago. I, I try to put myself back there sometimes, which sounds strange, but it's kind of cathartic. I'm sure you do the same thing. Uh, yeah. But I'm sh- I was just not in a good place a lot of that time. And I just used food to punish or to sedate, honestly, in a lot of ways. So, yep. yeah, there was. And, and I mean, that's just so that was very true for me, too. When I when I look back to, you know, very clear memories that I have of um, really intense binging there is always a connection to a very difficult feeling that I was having. Like yeah. nothing about it was just about needing to satisfy my hunger. There was always tied to a really intense emotional state that was happening. Yeah. Yep. Okay. So we're going to turn, I want to go back to what you were talking about earlier about addictions and how some people are truly addicted. Others might not be. And that is, absolutely the case. I mean, not everyone listening. I know I don't want anyone to think that we're saying that everyone who drinks has a problem because that is not the case. Uh, how, so I just watched, I don't know if you've seen the or read the book, Daisy Jones and the Six. I have not. Okay. I've heard about You've it. You've got to see this show. Okay. The, the book was amazing. I listened to it on audio, uh, audiobooks. Is that what they, the uh, Libby or whatever it uh-huh. was. And then I watched the miniseries on Amazon and it was just amazing. So anyway, So in this book, one of the main characters, Billy Dunn, he goes on a bender, several of them. He is a rock star. So that's just and it's in the 70s. So you can imagine Uh, this bender includes alcohol, some other drugs. It's yeah. So after this, he and his friends and family agree that he needs to go to rehab and get sober. But meanwhile, all of his friends, his bandmates, they all continue drinking, doing copious amounts of drugs without any question, without ever hitting, quote unquote, rock bottom. So the message I feel like I received and that viewers and readers receive is that Billy Dunn was an addict, but the others could handle it better. So they were okay. And I I truly feel like I see this a lot in real life where someone may drink to the point of blacking out every other night uh, or doing something horrible, you know, 
whatever it is. So they decide they have a problem. I need to get sober. But meanwhile, all their friends do the same thing, but maybe it doesn't have the same like after effect. They're, they can function better. They're a quote unquote functioning drinker. So I guess the question mm-hmm. is, is it true that some people are addicts or more prone to addiction, but others aren't and that maybe they're okay? And, and what's the difference? Oh, well, I mean, that's a great person for, you know, a, a neurospecialist. I know. Think her an addiction specialist. <laughs> I know. But the, the thoughts that I'm having as you are describing this um, are, oh, wow. Yeah, I was a super functioning alcoholic. Nobody knew the pain that I was in from alcohol. Mm-hmm. Um, I could look at, you know, I was in just as many risky situations. I had just as many opportunities for something life altering, terrible to happen. It just didn't happen. So all those other bandmates, you know, if we were to create a new movie for each of them and dive into their life, I think it's very likely we would find that alcohol is having a negative impact on their life whether or not somebody can see it on the outside. Yeah. Yeah. No, I completely understand. I can and, and agree with you. I I sometimes think that no, I always think now that I'm aware, I now that I see it everywhere, I feel like messages like this in that book are harmful. And I don't not blaming the author. I mean, it was a, again a really good book, a great story, and I see this everywhere. It's in so many movies, so many books, so many stories, so many real life examples. But you're exactly right. Just because someone doesn't hit rock bottom or because someone um, doesn't have alcoholism in their family, it does not mean that they can't be negatively affected by alcohol and that alcohol isn't harming them in some way. I I think you you summed that up perfectly, even though you're not a neuroscientist. And um, yeah, yeah, I mean, the problem isn't the individual. The problem, none of us are to blame for this. None of us are sitting here saying, oh, I have a problem with alcohol, but I'm going to keep it all, you know, to myself. I don't think almost any, nobody, well, not nobody, most of us aren't thinking about it on that level. Mm -hmm. We're just looking around and saying, well, all my bandmates do it. Mm -hmm. Why should I have any, you know, concerns about it? You know, it's, it's the, it's the socio-cultural climate that we live in that has been um, fed to us you know, through big alcohol marketing yep. that's been going on for a long time. I am, I'm scrolling through my phone right now because I need to share with my friend who also doesn't drink, um, but was a partier with me in college, right? Yeah. So we were both there. Mm-hmm. She sent me this ad last week. It was like a clip out of, I don't know, it was like an old newspaper ad or something. So it's a woman in the, let's say, 1950s, standing in her doorway, watching her husband in a suit walk out the door to go to work. And the big headline on the ad says, it's all right for him. Can I read this? Yes. Do you have time to read this? Yes. It says, he goes off in the morning and you can see he's anticipating the bustle, the life his day will bring. Problems to sort out, people to talk to, have a joke with lunch with his friends, then back to his work, absorbed and interested until it's time to come home. And all you seem to have is the same dull round of household chores. You feel everybody's enjoying life more than you, Through though in your heart, you know this isn't true. It's at times like this that thousands of women find synatogen tonic wine so helpful and so enjoyable 
Tonic wine is a wonderful, restorative, pleasant tasting combination of elements and rich ruby wine that will have you feeling your old self again, which explains why it's the world's most popular wine. And the tagline at the bottom is, that's lovely, that's better. So let's say that this was 50, 60 years ago. We have been so deeply conditioned to say, just go grab a drink. Oh my God, I need a drink. Oh my gosh, you're going to need a bottle of wine tonight, right? Yeah. That's, that's what's normal. And like, I'm sure that's not shocking to anybody who's listening to this. We all, we kind of know this, but yet we don't really want to see it. I just think that's a huge part of like, you know, why a storyline like that is it's harmful only in the sense that it totally reinforces and reproduces like the the world that we're all living in with alcohol. Yeah. Wow. That That is so that was actually an ad from many years ago. Like that's not a, a recent ad. I don't know where she got it. I'll send it to you because see if we can find out. But I read it and I'm like. Like women were told, you know, there has been a huge like attack towards not even an attack, but, you know, a message sent to women first. It, it was cigarettes in big tobacco and then it was um, alcohol. And all of this I learned through a, a great book called Quit Like a Woman I read that. Um, by Holly Whitaker. You probably know. Yes. Yeah. Um, she does a great job of going into um, really kind of pulling back the curtain around all of this. Yeah, that but was a great they book. They used kind of women's empowerment and like supporting women and helping women feel good and you have a right to drink or you have a right to smoke in public they use that to sell their products Mm -hmm. yeah and they still do and you see things like mommy juice or mommy wine or who knows mommy deserves a drink yes you know yeah it's yeah you deserve a drink i mean if that's not something we all hear every day you know it's just like we deserve so much yeah, more. Yeah, it, it makes me sad because I stopped drinking and I feel like I was when Dorothy walked out of her black and white house and walked into um, whatever that land is that she walked. Oz? Yes. <laughs> Too many things going on in my <laughs> mind today. Yeah. I mean, that's I I just felt like I was seeing the world through an entirely new lens for the first time. And I know that that is not everyone's experience. And for many, many people, early sobriety is not a walk through Oz at all. Mm-hmm. But for some people, it really is. And um, it's just a different way of living. Yeah. Yeah. I, I will say something that got has gotten me through, again, not sober, sober curious, but my husband is sober. That is very helpful for me. Uh, and my friends are very supportive of us not being big drinkers, him not drinking at all. And me like, being done with one, uh, which I really appreciate, or they wouldn't be my friends, let's be honest. Uh, But I will tell you something that has helped me is really getting in tune with the fact that for the the longest time, I the only calories I would drink was beer and wine. And I would even say that too, like, I don't drink my calories unless it's beer and wine. That's like a thing that I would say. Um, But now that I am an intuitive eater and I truly appreciate good drinks. Like I really, I will go to a restaurant and and go to their mocktail list and just get so excited when they have, you know, some really, really fancy drinks or if they can make a fancy drink with me without alcohol. Yeah. So me too. That has helped me. Like I'm sure it's helped you too. And just 
even just like kombucha, I'll just make I'll just make all these fun drinks at home. So instead of, you know, after work going downstairs and slumping on the couch and thinking, uh, what am I going to have to drink that's alcoholic? I'll think, okay, what can I make that is fun and exciting that I will enjoy that's non alcoholic? So that brings me to what is your favorite mocktail? <laughs> yeah, I have to say that like in the first six months of stopping drinking, I I really needed it. Like there was a strong association for me with holding a drink, yeah. holding a wine glass, um, taking a sip of something that was was part of like comforting me. So not only did I like to make mocktails, I actually needed to. Mm-hmm. Like that was part of what kept me from drinking. If I was going to go to a party and just, you know, stand there empty-handed, I was much more vulnerable empty-handed than I was having something in my hand. Yeah. Um so early on tons of mocktails, tons of um, you know, playing around all kinds of wonderful things. Lately, lately, um, I actually really like some of the new varieties of the um, athletic brewing non-alcoholic beer that have been released. They taste really good. I don't like all of them, but I like some of them. And I love that non-alcoholic beer is becoming so much more mainstream. I think my husband told me it was the largest growing segment of the like alcohol companies um it was the largest growing like pe- part of business i think the last couple of years which is says a lot have you had hairless dog no okay so i saw it on someone's instagram once they oh we got a, received a free sample of this hairless dog and a beer because i i love beer in fact it's the only thing that i do still drink is beer on occasion i just absolutely love it um, so I've been trying so hard to, cause all NA beers that I've had, they just, there is something missing. And I know people might be thinking it's the alcohol. It's not even that. There, <laughs> it's, there's just like a taste that is missing from all of them. That is just off to me. I still drink them and I do enjoy them, but a hairless dog brewing company, which I want to say is in Minnesota or Wisconsin. I can't remember probably neither of those, but anyway, you can get it. I, I found it at Walmart. I found it. You can buy it. You can order online. But it is the best NA beer that I have I will ever look it had. Up. So you've got to give it a try. Okay. Yes. I'm going to look it up. Yeah, I'll go weeks and weeks without having anything. I mean, for me, I go, I'm like, what is refreshing? Like, yes. I think about refreshing a lot now. That's something that comes up for me. Mm-hmm. Um I sometimes I'll make a um, virgin like uh, gin and tonic mm. with like one of those non-alcoholic um, a spirit mm-hmm. with um, some club soda, some tonic water and a bunch of lime. And those are delicious. Uh, Seed Lip. That's a brand. They make some cool um, different non-alcoholic spirits. Oh, okay. Um, and I also would just say to people listening like, it's always changing. Like it was really, really important to me in the first six months to a year. And then, you know, I noticed a shift where I, I really wasn't thinking about alcohol much at all. And year two and year three, it's just so much more, you know what? It's so much more like intuitive eating, my drinking, yeah. like not alcohol drinking, but my actual drinking, yeah. like 
If I want a glass of orange juice, I'll have a glass of orange juice. If I want a root beer, gonna go for the root beer. You know, and of course, all of that is super tied to like the what we all heard and told that you shouldn't drink your calories. So, I mean, everything's just always an evolution. And I've been told that your first few years of being sober from alcohol is one thing, but that like, you know, five years and up is like even better, you know, like, and it it truly keeps changing because every day that you make one decision differently than you might have otherwise has an impact on the next day and the next day and the next day. And I absolutely have seen that happen in my life. My my life is a, a very different life, I believe, three years later than where I would be today had I not stopped drinking. Well, thank you so much, Sumner, for sharing that, sharing your story, sharing your wisdom. I love to have you on here. Uh, This has just been wonderful. And I really appreciate you taking the time to be here and sharing all that with us. Oh, thank you so much. It's always really fun to talk to you. So maybe we can do it again. That sounds good. Thanks, Sumner. I hope you enjoyed that interview as much as I did. Uh, you know, like I said, I've interviewed Sumner a couple times on my previous podcast, and I just really, really enjoy having her on. I always learn so much, and I always feel at the end of my interviews with her that I could just keep talking to her for hours. I will put all the links uh, uh, regarding everything that we discussed in in that interview in the show notes, so you can scroll down and see that, or you can go to my website to see that. Uh, And I will also link to ways that you can get in touch with Sumner if you're interested. All right, moving on. Favorite new product or recipe time. I just want to make a shout out uh, uh, to Seven Layer Dip. Okay, I have kind of forgotten about this delicious, um, I don't know, appetizer, side dish, whatever you want to call it. I, as a kid, absolutely loved eating Seven Layer Bean Dip. And I don't know why, but as an adult, it never really occurred to me to make it until just recently. Uh, So I found this, I mean, they're all pretty simple, but simple recipe online. Uh, And I, of course, love, love simple recipes, especially when it's something that I have to bring to a party. Uh, And and I also love a recipe that can be modified. Uh, So this recipe essentially just called for a can of, of refried beans that you add taco seasoning to to add some flavor. And then you add the layers, which is so much fun. You can even have your kids help you with this. The layer of sour cream, the layer of guacamole, layer of salsa, maybe some lettuce, Mexican cheese, black olives if you want, maybe not. Uh, I know my family doesn't like black olives, but I love black olives. So I like to add them to at least half of the bean dip. Tomatoes, green onion, red onion, Uh, And then you can even layer them all again if you want or just end there. Serve with your favorite, I would say, thick and sturdy chip dip or chip to dip uh, into the dip Uh, because I hate it when I go to dip a chip and it cracks in half or it breaks. That is my biggest pet peeve. So get, get a nice, thick, sturdy chip that you can use in this bean dip because it's definitely thick uh, and go to town. Enjoy it. I hope you enjoy it as much as, as we did. All right, that's it for today. Coming up on January 15th, I will be talking about a non-diet new year. Until then, treat yourself with the respect you deserve, be the best friend you've always wanted, and reach out to me at any time on Instagram at Nutrition Unmeasured or via email at trustyourbody at gmail.com. All right, thanks so much, everyone, and be well.